CES Wednesday. We have so many cool, diverse people from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different upbringings, and it just keeps growing. I feel it in my I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm a hustler. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. I'm the queen of the tribe. I am playing whatever role I gotta play. I'm gonna play this game for speed. I ain't going down like no punk. A new Survivor, Wednesday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Everyone wants to look into the future, the future, the future, and that's okay. We still got a few months till the actual season starts, but since there is no off-season, it would be hypocritical of me to deny you a look into the future. It is the Late Kick Extra podcast. It is probably Tuesday morning, or at the very least sometime Tuesday or Wednesday, the year of our Lord, 2023. Yeah, it's April 4th. And this is the Late Kick Extra pod, where all we do is dive into the mailbag at Late Kick Josh Instagram, at Late Kick Josh Twitter. You can hit me up, college football, etc. And we'll answer it pretty much no matter what it is. I waste no time as I am probably on the road storm chasing while you listen to this. So let's dive in to this mailbag. And there is a lot of variety, a very, very diverse mailbag we have for you today. Thomas hit me up and said, if you could pick a week four game to go to right now, which one would you pick? Okay. So for those of you who just don't have the schedule memorized, that's me. We got Ohio State at Notre Dame that week. Thomas, I'm taking your word for that. We've got Florida State at Clemson that week. And Thomas, I know that's the case. And we've got Ole Miss at Alabama. I don't think much of anyone is going to pick Ole Miss at Alabama just right now. Unless you're a a Rebels fan or a Bama fan, you're just not picking that game over the other two. So I think we need to narrow this down to FSU, Clemson, possible game of the year in the ACC, probable game of the year in the ACC. And also, we can narrow it down to Ohio State at Notre Dame. Remember, even though the Irish fell in that one last year, which was earlier in the year, I think it was week one, it was a close game. Notre Dame led late in the second half before Ohio State finally pulled away. And just by the way, if you're listening on pod, some other notables, you do have Iowa at Penn State that day. Uh, You've got Colorado at Oregon. So you could call that Dion at Oregon. UCLA's at Utah that day, Texas is at Baylor, so a really good week for slate of games. Plus, as we all know, if we eat, sleep, and breathe this thing we call college football, there are going to be matchups that aren't even on your radar right now that all of a sudden end up vying for game of the week candidacy come week four. I don't really know what my answer here is. I beat around the bush that long to tell you I don't really know what my answer here is. I am about 55% leaning towards Florida State Clemson. The last The last big, I'm trying to make sure this is right. I think the last big ACC game I went to was a Clemson-Florida State game. It was down in Doak. It was in 2015 or 16, and it was a classic. 35-31 final, I think. Clemson won the game. Uh, this, this This could be a coronation of sorts, not as a championship situation, not as a playoff situation, but a reemergence situation. Because point blank, no one's taken Florida State seriously on the national scene until they beat Clemson. They'll take them seriously as being a pretty good team. They're not taking them serious as a national contender until they beat Clemson. That's the way it should be. It's fair that way because we don't have an expanded playoff yet. So you're not going to be able to back your way in in all likelihood unless you go through the top dog in the conference. And that top dog's been on top for a long time because people like Florida State and Miami and the like haven't stepped up. Well, you can't do anything about the past, but you can control the here and now. And I'm basically trying to promote the game right now, convince myself. But having said that, 
if you were to tell me Ohio State and Notre Dame, both undefeated when they play. You know my affinity for South Bend. You know my affinity for the history of this sport. You know that I try and view everything within the lens of uh, cinematography. You know, I picture myself in a movie in a lot of cases when I go to these places because it's the closest that your boy will ever come to being on a movie set. I mean, sure, I make Outer Banks, but that's just a Netflix series, you know? So we're talking about a full-blown movie set here. And I, um, I love Notre Dame Stadium. I've only been there once. It was the Georgia game in 2017. Love it. And I would love to see this game. I really hate that they don't let me, as future college football commissioner, control the scheduling apparatus yet. Because if they did, I would divide these games up a little bit more evenly. And we would never have any down weeks. I don't think that exists anyway, but some, some more casual-minded amongst us would suggest that they do. But we wouldn't have down weeks. And we would, however, not have weeks where seven of the biggest games in the season all happen simultaneously. So I think I'm going to go by the slimmest of margins to start the season with FSU Clemson. But you could really, really easily talk me off of that. We've got a loaded mailbag, as I said. We're in, we're in no rush, though, because, well, we don't have time constraints here. There's no hard in or hard out. It just, um, it's at our leisure. So I appreciate you guys and girls being tuned in. I, I say that intentionally because, as you know, our, our female demographic continues to grow and grow and grow. And we're very happy about that. Ladies of Pate State, stand up. David hit us up and said, if you could take one college football player, past or present, storm chasing with you, who would it be and why? You may think this is a difficult question. You may think that I had to rack my brain. This was so easy. This took me two nanoseconds. Tony Brown, former defensive back at the University of Alabama, was a pure psychopath. I say that in the best of ways. Tony Brown comes out of Beaumont, Texas, five-star defensive back, and he commits to Alabama, and it is so nice and neat and pleasant, and he's mild-mannered, and he's well-spoken, and he's so buttoned down. And then he got to Alabama. I'm not sure what they did, but whatever they did brought something out in Tony Brown that wasn't there when he was on that screen committing out of Beaumont, Texas. Let me tell you that. I was around Alabama a lot because I was working in local news and we covered Auburn, Georgia, and Alabama the most. And they go to the playoff one year. This is a true story. They go to the playoff one year and they beat Clemson. They were playing Clemson every year. They played Clemson every year Tony Brown was at Alabama. Never in the regular season. So anyway, they beat Clemson. And this is the year after Clemson had beaten them in the national championship game. So it's 2017. It's the Sugar Bowl. It's, I think uh, it was a semifinal. I think I have my dates right there. And so Bama versus Clemson. Bama takes care of Clemson pretty handedly. And that was the infamous Tony Brown post-game interview where he's just screaming nonsense. But in the midst of a bunch of jumbled up alleged words, you get Tony Brown telling you, I appreciate Dabo Swinney for lying about us last year. I appreciate Hunter Renfro for lying about us last year. He lied on us. And then the investigation started. And the investigation was, that's a harsh allegation. What did they say? What did they lie about? And so people went to digging around the internet. And people went to digging around past statements. Because, you know, normally when these guys talk, it's very high profile. It's very on the record. No one could find anything. No one could. Uh, people asked Hunter Renfro point blank, hey, what lie did you tell about Tony Brown? He said, I don't know. I have, I have no idea. He almost just washed his hands of it. And Dabo Swinney, I'm not really sure if he answered that question one way or the other, but here's what was happening. 
what was happening is you just picture the Alabama team bus and you picture Nick Saban choosing one guy to sit next to. And he just, he just slides in there and positions himself next to Tony Brown. And I just picture, I just picture them next to each other. And Saban is in silence. He's looking over his notes, but, but just every few minutes, he just leans over and, I can't believe what they said about you. And that's it. And just, he just lets it stew. Dabo Swinney, the audacity. You know, who is Hunter Renfro? Hunter Ren- no one ever heard from him 15 minutes ago. Now he's talking about how he's better than you? It worked on Tony Brown. It worked. And so Tony Brown, you put him in like a high leverage pressure situation. You, you, have, you have had it told to you that pressure can, can build diamonds or it can burst pipes. But there's a third option. Tony Brown is the third option of what pressure can do to something or someone. And some people got uncomfortable by it. I loved it. I loved it. And also when he did that interview after the Sugar Bowl, after they stopped rolling the cameras, the iJosh was still rolling. And I've got this footage somewhere. I think I probably should go find it and post it. But he just does a circle around the lower bowl of the New Orleans Superdome. Forget what the sponsor was at the time. And Tony Brown just shouts at people, including, including some, some older Clemson fans who probably have never even heard of him before. Uh, they, but for all Tony Brown knows, they were trash-talking him too. So Tony Brown, he had... Um, he had no filter on who he was ready to target that day. And that's kind of how we want to chase. So if I got someone who's willing to go over the cliff, if I got someone who really throws caution to the wind, that's the kind of attitude we have to have on the chase. I want Tony Brown storm chasing with me. Definitely don't want him on the other team. If we have a Bill Paxton Jonas type twister situation, I definitely don't want him on the Jonas team. I got to have him on my team. Uh, Dre, next up, how soon will the best players in college football sit out regular season games due to playoff expansion? This is a dirty question. I always hesitate to talk about this because it's my biggest fear, obviously. Uh, It's not the only reason that I'm sort of anti-expansion because, frankly, I think this is a little more out there. But it is a remote possibility, and if it's even a remote possibility, it's scary. It's kind of like if I were doing a, a finance and economics show right now. I wouldn't want to answer questions about the banks possibly defaulting on withdrawals because it's a big fear, obviously. There's a run on banks and they can't fulfill your withdrawals. Well, you got a banking crisis. And so I would just just steer away from it. Uh, That's the same way I would never make horror movies because I would be scared to give actual people ideas to do things in real life. Well, I don't want to give players the idea of sitting out college football playoff games or regular season games. But since you asked the question... I think there's a small chance of it, but I think there is a chance. Now, here's what won't happen. What I don't think would ever happen is any team like Michigan, if they're the number two seed, I don't think their players are sitting out games ever. I do think, though, while I don't predict it, I do think there is a small chance that after we get a few years into the playoff, the new 12-team era, and we recondition ourselves to know what to expect, and we recondition ourselves to know what's normal, that the thinking will change. It's impossible to do this right now. Uh, I know what a lot of you are already saying. A lot of you are already looking sideways at your phone or wherever you're listening to me right now, and you're saying, is he really about to suggest that players are going to sit out regular season games or playoff games? That's impossible. No one would ever do that. Well, you're half right. No one would ever do it right now, because right now, 
we know that games with playoff implications are maximum in their importance and playoff games themselves, because we have three of them, two semifinals and a national title game, are maximum in their importance. We have four playoff spots right now. The simple fact is you cannot decrease the scarcity of something and maintain the value of it. We have more of something. That means the individual somethings lose a little bit of individual value. That's the trade-off that a lot of you are willing to accept. That's fine. You're dragging me kicking and screaming down the road, but I'm going to come with you because the alternative is not to watch the sport anymore. But what my fear is, is we, let's say we start this playoff in 2024. Let's say it's 2029, and we've got five or six or seven or whatever years of case study built up that the 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 seeds, they just don't stand a chance unless it's something like LSU sneaking in the back door because they've got a good enough roster to make a run. So let's say that the, the body of work has convinced us that some teams really have no shot and what you thought was going to be huge, playing for a spot no matter what the seed is, ends up not being so huge because you end up saying to yourself, yeah, the winner of this game could get the 11 seed, but what is it really going to mean? You don't think you'll say that, but you'll end up saying that. Well, my fear is that we have then devalued playoff spots to the point where someone on one of those teams that may be eight and three and playing in the regular season finale is projected to be a first round draft pick and says, I don't want to really risk it. The millions of dollars potentially in my future outweigh in value uh, possibly getting a playoff spot where it looks like we just get drug anyway. Because once you go down that slope, it's too slippery to come back up. You're done. Because then, then the illusion, the kind of fog that you're hoping to keep in front of everyone's face, the accepted value of playoff spots, it's gone. Because you ever, have you ever thought about this? Like what would happen if all of a sudden the players didn't take as seriously the things that we take seriously? That's a very fine balance. Right now, you don't ever have to worry about it. If you're an NFL fan, Players take the Super Bowl very, very seriously. They always will. In college football, players take the national championship and right now the playoff very seriously. Will it always be that way? Will conference championship games always be that way? And therefore, as the question was asked, will regular season games always be that way? I hope the answer is yes. Even, even people like me who don't want expansion, I hope the answer is yes. There is a world, though, where I see that happening. See, I, I always do this. I always look for precedent. In the legal world, they would look at for, for case study on it. And there is case study on it. It's just not apples to apples. I can't go back in college football history and say, here is an expanded 12-team playoff. Let's see what happened. But we can look for some similarities. Here's the similarity. The four-team playoff is the similarity. Once upon a time, about a decade ago, as recently as a decade ago, it would have been insane to talk about people opting out of bowl games. Just insane. If I were doing this show in 2011 or 2012, and I said, hey, if we expand the playoff, I think guys are just going to opt out of non-playoff games. I don't think they're going to take it seriously anymore. You would have told me that was crazy because there's, there's just an accepted value in making a bowl game. And then they started opting out. It only took one. Leonard Fournette, I think, was one of the big early opt-outs. But then once that happened, it went from one to seven to 20. 
and then it just kind of exponentially ballooned to, you, to where you have what you have today. You, you just assume that the big players aren't going to play. It's so assumed now that we made a ton of money off the Sugar Bowl because people, Vegas even, assumed that Bryce Young and Will Anderson were not going to play for Alabama against Kansas State. They hung Bama minus three and a half as the opening line. And then all of a sudden they announced they're going to play and Vegas is just exposed. So anyway, what I'm saying is, don't think just because something sounds crazy and irrational right now that it couldn't happen. Because there are several things that are the norm today that would have been crazy and out of this world insane just a decade ago. Decade's not a very long time. So we're talking in 2023 right now. Uh, most of us plan on being around in 2033. Most of us plan on still loving college football in 2033. Is it, it, are the parts of it you love still there to love? That's, I guess, what we're asking. And it has to remain rhetorical for the time being. All right, we roll merrily along here. Nathan hit me up and said, everyone is super high on Florida State and Clemson. Well, where did all the North Carolina hype go? Why are they not seen as a favorite to at least go back to the ACC title game with Drake May returning from Tullahoma, Tennessee? This is a good question. There was a lot of hype, wasn't there? I contributed. I'm guilty. I'm not too proud to admit it. I think what happened was two years ago it started. Two years ago, North Carolina was hyped, and they just fell flat on their face. And that's really when most people checked out. Now, I hung around a little bit longer, and I said, hey, I thought last year they may have a secretly better shot than they did the year before. And I was, I was kind of right, I guess, because they went 9-5 and five, as opposed to going 6-7. and seven. And they did go to the ACC championship game, whereas they did not the year before. But they were so dead in the water down the stretch, and they were so, therefore, vulnerable in the conference championship game, if, you'll, if you've forgotten, let me refresh your memory. Their last three games, they played Georgia Tech, a rudderless Georgia Tech, and lost. They played NC State and lost. And then they got drugged by Clemson in the conference championship game. And then they got beat by Oregon in the bowl game. So they were 0 for 4 their last four games. So if you want to know where the hype went, that's where the hype went. No one believes in the team. Now, that doesn't mean anything. You're not asking me, is hype and production on the field correlated? Because they're not. In fact, sometimes they're, they're totally opposite. But people don't believe in them because they have shown themselves in the eyes of many to sort of be hollow. North Carolina, there's some good pieces there. Yeah, you got the quarterback, but you had him last year too. And so they just feel kind of hollow. Now, what does Vegas think? Well, North Carolina's got the third best odds to win the conference, well, to win the national championship out of ACC teams. Drake May has the third best Heisman odds at Caesars. So certainly Vegas has not punted on North Carolina. They just have to be better. Like I think hollow is the best word to describe their style of play. They have to be better. No one fears them when they play Clemson. No one fears them. Now, I don't think any people are going to take them seriously against Florida State this year until proven otherwise. So they, they've had their shot. Now, the window's not closed. That's the good news for them. The window's not closed. And the other bit of good news is it doesn't matter if people believe in you or not. Some programs out there do better when people don't believe in them. But that's where the, that's where the North Carolina hype went. I think at this point, it would be a little disingenuous to just keep hyping North Carolina uh, in the midst of evidence to the contrary. I believe in you. They don't. There you go. I, I wanted that 
as a soundbite for down the road. Because we do that from time to time. Uh, let's see. Let's go with Alex. Alex is next up. Alex asked, what are fair expectations for Bama this year? What happens if they underachieve again? This second question always, always floors me. I, I love it. We're not talking about A&M. We're not talking about West Virginia. Okay, those are teams where if they underachieve this year, you may very well be looking at coaching changes. You absolutely would be looking at one at West Virginia. This is a question about an 11-2 and two Sugar Bowl champion. And the question is, what if they underachieve again? Which leads one to believe they underachieved last year, and one is right to believe that, which shows you how astronomically high the standard is at a place like Alabama. So let's answer the second question first. What happens if they underachieve again? They'll probably win 10 games, and nothing will really change, at least cosmetically, nothing will really change. Like, what's the, what do you want me to say? That they're going to fire Nick Saban? He's going he's to voluntarily step down? I'm not good enough anymore. I only won 10 this year. Nothing's going to change. Or at least nothing that is related to that. Or nothing that's caused by that would change. But uh, the first question is the one that I want to focus on. What is a reasonable expectation for them? Reasonable, in our eyes, is what is, what is out of 100 simulations the most likely outcome? So it's not best case, it's not worst case, it's most likely, it's reasonable to expect this. 12-0 and 0 is reasonable to expect with them every year. There are two or three programs where you can reasonably have that expectation. That doesn't mean it's a crisis if they're 11-1. and 1. That doesn't mean the earth is tilting off its axis if they're 10-2. and 2. But it does mean when you recruit the best players in the country, you've got the best infrastructure in the country, you've got the best head coach in the country, you've got an established track record of a decade and a half of dominance now. Yeah, it's reasonable to expect that you'll beat every team on your regular season schedule because you'll be favored against every one of them. That's reasonable. And then if you go 11-1, and one, all your goals are still in front of you, you're good. Unless the one loss you have is to a team that themselves goes undefeated in your in your division. So they play Texas in week two. They got Ole Miss at home in week four. They go to A&M this year. They got Tennessee at home. They got LSU at home. They go to Auburn at the end of the year. They absolutely should win every game they play. Now, uh, the question obviously starts at quarterback. The questions also extend to the two new coordinators. I think it's going to be an interesting team to watch this year. You know, I as I say this, it makes it sound like I think there's some superhuman team. I don't think that at all. Um, actually, I thought last year's team was the one that was really supposed to rewrite the record books up there. So Alabama this year, yeah, it's reasonable to expect them to win every game. It's always reasonable to expect a team to win a game they're favored in. And Bama will be favored in every game on their schedule. So it's reasonable to expect that. But what happens if they don't? What, what is underachievement? Is 11-1 and one underachievement? Is 10-2? 10-2 and, two, 10 and two is underachievement. What if? Well, what if? Okay. Uh, what if that happens? The thing that happens if that goes down would be the same thing that's happening right now. People would freak out. Uh, Nick Saban may make some staff changes, but they'd just roll right into the next season and, and go about their business. That's, that's what would happen. That's the what if. I was almost unsure of how to answer that question, so I decided to just answer it on the fly. That's it. What if? Uh, it already happened. So you already see what would happen if that went down. Next up, sorry, I'm just, I'm just catching my breath for a second. Perry 
with a, with a very, very important question here. Perry asked, what is the ideal perfect college football weather conditions? The ideal perfect college football weather conditions. People argue about the perfect college football weather conditions a lot because there is this misnomer out there. And to be clear, it's a misnomer that snow and, and wind and 23 degrees, that's football weather. Certainly, it's weather that you can play football in. That is not ideal for me. And full disclosure, I was a kid who grew up in the South and fantasized about snow because I never got to see it. Um, very rarely did we get to see it. So it was my dream. We play a pickup football game that's way more than just a pickup game. Every day after Thanksgiving, we called it the Thanksgiving Classic. We played it at Harris County High School. Full tackle, eight on eight. We had a rule book. We had everything. We had officials. And we would always dream about playing that game in snow. We settled for rain. We wanted to play in the elements. So, so trust me, I grew up romanticizing playing football in the elements just like you all did. However, as I got older, I have tried to maintain a very hardened exterior. But there are some soft points that have started to develop within me. And one of those is I don't like cold weather anymore. I want warm weather. So my ideal weather conditions for a college football game are about 65 degrees and sunny. And this is how soft I've gotten. The earlier the kickoff, the better. It doesn't have to do necessarily with an early bedtime. It has to do with uh, the fact that I'm on the road and traveling back. And so those early kickoffs obviously give me a chance to fly back to Nashville that night. I mean, case in point, this last year, I was at Bama, Texas, and that was an 11 a.m. Central kickoff, and I was back in Nashville in time to watch the late games. Ditto, Ole Miss, Kentucky, 11 a.m. kickoff this last year. I'm back in Nashville in time to watch the late kickoffs. That's living. That's, that's how you do it. Uh, and in the meantime, I would like to get back to Nashville and have a nice, nice little base tan built up from a late fall, nice autumn, sunny afternoon, little bit of chill in the air in the morning, but it warms up into a, a beautiful high sky, you know, periodic clouds, mainly sunny 65 degree day on one of several beautiful campi, plural of campus, that we have across this great country of ours. I'm going to get pushback on that. I know I am. I know a lot of you love the snow. I mean, I was up there. I was up there for Ohio State, Michigan two years ago, and that was certainly picturesque. And as a one-off, you know, experiencing that once, that's great. I'm, I'm not crazy about going through that. I hate the wind a lot more than I hate the snow, but I am not crazy about going through that. Not crazy about it at all. Used to be, not, a, not at all anymore. There's just, I don't know. Little JP would be very disappointed. And so, to, from me, to little JP, I am sorry that I have to do that to you. Uh, let's go with Wyatt. Wyatt from Lubbock, Texas. With the word being thrown around so willy-nilly at the moment, LSU women's basketball and all, how would you properly define and use the term classless? Classless, Wyatt asks me about. Classlessness. For those of you who don't know what he's talking about, all four of you, we had Iowa versus LSU, Women's National Championship in College Basketball Sunday. It was so big, we were watching it in the office. And I was having to teach Jesse about the finer points of women's college basketball. And so you have the ending happen, and you got Caitlin Clark, and you got Angel Reese, and someone does the you can't see me, and half of you don't even know what that means if you don't watch pro wrestling. And then it happened. I checked Twitter, 
and I got a bunch of 57-year-old guys calling a bunch of 19-year-old girls classless, and it is the most overused term in all of sports. Classless. Because no one ever in the middle of winning calls the losing team classless. It's only said when you're losing, and also 98% of the time, you are defining something as classless that you would readily endorse if your own folks did it. And I know it because any given point when one fan of a team is calling someone else classless, I can go back and find countless examples across multiple sports in their own program throughout history where their folks have done equal to or worse than the action that someone who is being defined as classless is currently exhibiting. A lot of words there. Uh, the point is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy abounds when people are calling others classless. What is classless to me? I'll tell you what classless is. Classless is Tanya Harding paying someone to take a crowbar to Nancy Kerrigan's shins. That was classless. I am willing to admit that. Why? That is classless. Uh, being a high-level competitor, being a little fiery, that is, that is not classless. It's, it's just that. It's competition. Angel Reese, I don't really care whether you like her or not. I don't really care whether you agreed with everything she said. Frankly, she said some stuff after the game that I didn't care for all that much. But when I say I didn't care for it, ultimately, I want, I want you to remember, I don't care, period. You can say whatever you want to. I don't have to like everything you say. It's competition. Um, if I want to do something about it, I should beat you. Then I get to say whatever I want to. But I have this thing that I've noticed. Uh, maybe it's not recent, but I've noticed it recently. This is not a movie, you know? This is not a television series. You don't always get the endings you want. You don't always get the story arc you want. And you don't always get to be happy at the end. And there are a, there's a growing number of people in the sporting society that think anything that happens against their better wishes and against their desires of what they want to see in terms of outcome, it's bad. And there's this growing group of people that think if, there, if there's unhappiness with an outcome, the outcome was bad. It's not bad. It's not the worst thing in the world for you to be upset. It's not the worst thing in the world for you to not care for something. I just told you. There were some, there were some things said yesterday I didn't care for two days ago, whenever it was. But, but who cares what I care about? I do. And that's it. You shouldn't care necessarily about my thoughts on, on how a women's basketball player carries herself unless she takes a crowbar to someone's shins. That's always the great caveat Mima told me. It's okay to talk. It's okay to wave your hand in someone's face. Keep the crowbar in the locker room. Don't take the crowbar out on the court. So unless we have a Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan situation, I'm going to let it fly. I don't really know if I define classless. I do get really tired of hearing it thrown around. We have done the overused terms in sports on the show before. We've gone with, and it's not even close. Blank, and it's not even close. That is one of my very tippy-top pet peeve overused terms because most of the time when someone says and it's not even close they're talking about something that's really close but classless it's really up there classless how would you define classless by the way like some people think it's classless when i do this this is tony kornheiser show i'm tony we expected someone else 
So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does. <laughs> Nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen. The haters in the control room tell me that wasn't my best ad toss. Uh, That's why they're haters, because that was pretty quality work. Next up, Will asks, how much, oh, Will, don't do this to me. Will asks, how much of Saban's greatness should be attributed to Kirby? Because we only hear vice versa. Not my fault. Will, there is no easy way to say this, so I'm just going to tell you. Kirby Smart did contribute a lot to Nick Saban's operation over in Tuscaloosa. That's just like a son working long hours and putting in great work at the family business. But you got to remember who brought the son into the world. And you're looking at who brought Kirby Smart into this world, into this football world, and that's Nick Saban. Now, I'm partly saying that just because I know it riles up some of my better friends back home in Georgia. Uh, My real thoughts on this are... Kirby Smart's one of the greatest head coaches we have in college football today. And therefore, he's one of the greatest Sabans ever have. I thought it was really interesting when they won that title, when Georgia won that title against Alabama a couple of years ago. Nick Saban's one of the most fiery competitors you'll see. He knew it was eventually coming from somewhere. Like one of his former assistants was going to beat him for a title at some point. And it was Kirby. And so when it happened, he smiled. As they embraced at midfield, he smiled. And I, I, don't, I, I don't know what I expected. I didn't expect that. But I think that there is a lot of admiration, although very competitive, there's a lot of admiration for Nick Saban when he looks at Kirby Smart because here's what he sees. What I think he sees is a bunch of folks who have worked under him who weren't able to duplicate what he does. They were able to say things like process. They were able to repeat the phrases. They were able to put the posters up on the wall, but they weren't able to implement it. Saying it versus implementing it, two totally different things. If you've ever tried to lead people, you know the difference between the two. He sees a guy for the first time who's been able to work under him and who has that DNA in him. Saban didn't put it in him. Kirby Smart's got it. That's what attracted Nick Saban probably to him. That's what allowed Nick Saban to delegate so much long-term responsibility. It is no small thing for Nick Saban to say, you are going to run my defense and do it for a long time. And so obviously he saw something in Kirby Smart a long time ago, but even then, you don't fully know what kind of head coach he's going to be, but Kirby Smart goes on to become a great head coach and Saban looks over there and appreciates it because Saban more so than anyone else knows how hard it is to do what Kirby Smart's doing. That's when someone comes in the back door, by the way, and they say, no, uh, 
I could win if I had everything he has. No, you couldn't. You'd be a loser. You'd, in all likelihood, you'd be a loser. I don't know you personally. I'm just saying if you're, if you're dumb enough to say that, you'd probably be a loser. Because I know that because a bunch of people have had really good opportunities with a ton of resources and flamed out spectacularly. Some of them are in the process of doing it as we speak. It's not easy. Even with everything at your fingertips, it's not easy. And let me remind you, by the way, some of what Kirby Smart has at his fingertips right now didn't exist when he got to Georgia. So back to the question. Uh, it's, it's, there, it was mutually beneficial, a very mutually beneficial relationship. You could look at Nick Saban's national titles and say, hey, he won several of them with Kirby Smart running his defense. And that defense was never better than when Kirby Smart was there. And you're right. Is there an excuse to be made? No. Kirby Smart's just a really good defensive mind. He was also a really good recruiter that got a number of those players. You don't, you don't have to knock one to praise the other, is my point. And so then Kirby Smart leaves. Saban is already in the process of reinventing his team. Saban wins a couple of more national championships, including one against Georgia after Kirby's left. So, so it's obvious that Kirby Smart was not the determining factor, but it's also very obvious that he was one of the critical factors in contributing to a lot of what Alabama was. If he wasn't, he would have gone to Georgia and failed. If he was a product solely of working under Nick Saban, he would have been exposed the moment he got a program of his own to run. I know that because several others have been exposed when they looked really good under Saban and as a result did get a program of their own to run. So the answer is Nick Saban uh, has been really great. Kirby Smart greatly benefited from being able to learn under and observe the best to ever do it. Nick Saban benefited because being who he is, he attracts the best and then benefits from having the best work for him. That's the way it works. That's no different than, than a big Wall Street CEO. Everyone wants to go work for him. And then the Wall Street CEO probably doesn't have to put in the sweat equity anymore that a lot of the rank and file do. And the rank and file sometimes are ignorant enough to look around and say, we're the ones who make him look good. We're the ones who make her look good. Really? There's a reason you fought and you crawled over broken glass to get the job you have because you know what that logo looks like on your resume. And in coaching, when you walk in with that script A on your chest, it means a little something different than when you walk in with another logo on your chest. So yes, it's mutually beneficial. I will not be dragged into this world of one or the other. I will not be dragged into the LeBron-MJ debate of college football. I will not be dragged into the Kirby or Saban. Just give me both. That's against the rules. There are no rules. Give me both of them. Immunity. Next up, Kenya. Very important question. When you go storm chasing, does it look like the movie Twister in real life? People are laughing. People are laughing out there because I think you know what my answer is going to be or you think you know what my answer is going to be. There are, there's a line in the sand to be drawn here. When we go storm chasing... From a pure atmospheric science standpoint, there may have been some liberties taken in the movie Twister. That's what Hollywood does. As I've explained before, I think on the show, and I'll explain it once more, where Twister really gets real is, is not necessarily in an accurate depiction of what the inside of a tornado looks like. In fact, uh, that, that, there are a lot of liberties taken with that at the very end. What I do think they nailed is storm chasing culture what it's like being on the road, what it's like being in the situation. The only thing, and it's a shame because it's one of the best scenes in the movie, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the 1996 blockbuster uh, Twister, 
one of the only scenes that's unrealistic, ironically, is the best scene in the movie, and that is the scene where in the middle of an action-packed chase day, they have time to go to Waukeda, Oklahoma, and eat steak and eggs at Aunt Meg's house. You have no time to do that in the middle of the day. I wish you did. Because I, I don't even care if you don't want to watch the movie Twister. You need to go watch the scene in Aunt Meg's. It's like back in the day, you remember when they would have those infomercials? If you watched Sunday Night Football, and then you just left the TV on. 60 Minutes would come on after it, and then if you left the TV on long enough, those, those Ronco Grill commercials would come on. This is like 1 o'clock in the morning. And so like only truck drivers and drunks are awake at this point. And you're watching Ronco commercials, and that was the thing where they would put the meat, whatever kind of meat you had, in the grill, and it would show you how to load it and, and you know, marinate it and put it in there. Then they would have a finished product right over here that they started cooking hours ago, and they would pull it out, and they would show you, and they would like take the Jinsu cutting knives, and they would carve open the meat, and it just made your mouth water. And it was impossible, my point is, it, would, it was impossible to watch that infomercial and not be hungry and then you got a problem because you're hungry at 1.35 in the morning. So what do you do? You, you make some bad decisions. I dare you to go watch the scene from Aunt Meg's house where they have the steak and the eggs and they have the mashed potatoes and then Meg's gravy, which is so good. In the words of Philip Seymour Hoffman, it should be its own food group being served to Jamie Gertz, part owner of the Atlanta Hawks now. I challenge you to watch that scene and not be hungry. If you're not hungry, I don't think you're alive after you watch the Aunt Meg scene in the movie Twister. Great movie. But yeah, so anyway, my point is, it's really fun. It's really fun. I said on, I think, I think it was another pod the other day. I don't think I've said it on this one. Someone asked me, they said, hey, what, why do you do that first off? Because granted, it's crazy to most people to want to put yourself in the path of a tornado. We saw two of them last Friday, by the way. Two of them. One in Brinkley, Arkansas. One in... a Des Ark, Arkansas. And one of them was between Cotton Plant and Little Dixie, Arkansas. Know your geography, kids, especially in rural Arkansas. So uh, the reason is because it's awesome. That's the reason. You have to have a little bit of something, a little, little crooked inside of you. Or maybe there's, there's a fear mechanism that is supposed to be in you that's missing in someone like me. But I don't think that's the case. Because I'm petrified of lightning. And most of you take lightning far too lightly. You laugh at me when I say my biggest fear in the world is lightning, which is, is kind of oxymoronic because I'm around it constantly when we're storm chasing. That's why I stick my head out of the sunroof instead of stepping outside a lot of times. True story. But um, anyway, I said, on the, I said on another pod the other day, they asked me what it's like. What's it like seeing a, seeing a tornado? And I, I gave you... Three things that I wanted you to combine. Uh, earmuff the kids for a second. Take sex. Combine it with being face-to-face -face with a lion. And combine that with being at the crest of a roller coaster just as it starts to go downhill. Take these three things. Put them in a blender. Hit the blender. Last, last notch there was for effect. Pour it out. And that is what the emotion is like. Who, whoops amongst us wouldn't want to experience that? The lion is behind glass in this scenario, by the way. So you are in danger, but it's a combined danger. All right, Porter, next up from Franklin, Tennessee. Very close by. Hey, that's down near where management's compound is. Porter asked, would LSU football 
be even more obnoxious than LSU women's hoops if they won a title. I don't think Porter's an LSU fan. I really get the feeling that Porter is, dare I say, anti-LSU. What did LSU ever do to you, Porter? Oh, so we go back to this old LSU women's basketball thing, the obnoxiousness, as some put it. Let me ask you a question. Is being obnoxious a bad thing? There's a pause there. I want you to think about it. Everybody's immediate reaction is yes. I'm not so sure it's a terrible thing all the time. This is, um, you know, this is like when I watch Parliament. When I watch parliamentary proceedings, they do things differently in Britain than they do it in the U.S. The U.S. political scene is a clown show behind the scenes, but they try in front when they're on camera. In Britain, they just part the curtain and they go at each other's throats right there in the open. And so both ways, there are things happening. The, the ball is being pushed forward within their own political lens. But in sports, the same thing can happen. In sports, you, if you've ever played, if you've ever played sports, you know what it's like at practice, you know what it's like in the locker room, and you know what it's like on the field unless someone's mic'd up. That's real, okay? That's authentic, that's genuine, that's raw. Why should it ever be dressed up? Why should you ever have to dress it up? You know how you feel inside when you win something or lose something. In a perfect world, and this is me talking, this is my opinion, in a perfect world, there is no filter. There is no restrictor plate. Just however you're feeling comes out. Some people are going to be rubbed the wrong way by it. Some people are going to be really obnoxious. Uh, some people are going to be robotic. I, I want all of that. And then if I don't like you, guess what I can do? I can root against you. And if I do like you, I can root for you. And then everyone can live happily ever after because you don't have to like everybody or everything. I would say, if anyone wants to talk about health of a sport, would it not be the best thing for the sport to have a healthy mixture out there of some things you like and some things you don't like? Now, we already have that baked into sports. You have your team, and then you have your rivals. Yes, we have that. But, but even, even within that, on a more granular sublevel, if there's an opposing player, you know, if you're, if you're a, an Iowa State fan, and there's some player at Texas Tech that rubs you the wrong way, good. doesn't matter. It's not the end of the world if you don't like someone. Like I said, as long as you don't take the crowbar to the shins, we're fine. In college football, LSU. Hey, when LSU won that title in 2019, not everybody liked Joe Burrow. Not everybody liked the dude smoking cigars in a no-smoking section of the Superdome. He did it anyway. Did he care? No. Should he care? No. Do I care? If I do, it's irrelevant. Now, I wasn't rubbed the wrong way by that in particular, but yeah, there have been some players in the past. I don't particularly care for them. Hey, Marshall Henderson, when he was playing basketball for Ole Miss, couldn't stand him. And yet, if I were advising him, I would tell Marshall Henderson, now look, I don't like you, but you probably need to keep doing whatever it is you're doing. Just keep doing it. There were people rubbed the wrong way by Johnny Menzel. When you rise above the crowd, you're going to have that. You're going to have a mixture of people who love you and people who want to play whack-a-mole with you. And this is what it is. So LSU, yeah, that'd probably be a little obnoxious. Here's the thing. The DNA of LSU athletics, what is woven into LSU sports and therefore what is present when they're at their best is going to rub some people the wrong way. 
That's what culture is about. That's what geographical and territorial culture is about. People in Louisiana are a different way than people in Albany, New York, than people in, in Bismarck, North Dakota. Who it's, that's called culture. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. So when you take what is unique about Louisiana and then you turn it up to 11 and it has athleticism woven into it, that is LSU athletics. And so when that women's basketball team wins, it's going to look different than Iowa. It's going to feel different. It's going to sound different than Iowa. When LSU football wins, ditto. If and when they win a title under Brian Kelly, let me spoil the ending for you. Going to sound a little different, look a little different, feel a little different than if Iowa football were to win it under Kirk Ferentz. Neither one of them's bad. They're just different. We're not pumping everyone off an assembly line here. We're not programming players. And if you're rubbed the wrong way by it, at the end of the day, that's it. That's the net result. You just don't like something. You watch shows all the time that have characters in it you don't like. You watch movies all the time, and it's got a character in it you don't like. Antagonist, protagonist. Now, the difference in sports is we can organically get that. No one has to write it. No one had to write what happened in the LSU-Iowa women's game. No one had to write it. That's just raw competition. That is the theater of competition playing out before the world's eyes. I liked it, even if I didn't like parts of it. I liked it overall. And in LSU's case, it's coming. They will, they will eventually win a national championship under Brian Kelly. To me, I think that's going to happen. If you think people are rubbed the wrong way by LSU, hey, wait till USC wins one under Lincoln Riley. Wait till you see national championship winning head coach Lincoln Riley. Because Riley is a guy who most of the country is convinced can't win one. And Southern Cal, by default, is going to be hated anytime they're good because it's Southern California. So yeah, there are a few of those brands out there that if they ever rise back to the top level of the sport, you're not, some of you aren't going to like it. But that's okay. That's not the worst thing in the world. What is a bad thing is that we're done for the day. But I do need you to do one thing. Make sure you subscribe to the pod. You can leave a five-star review if you want. I appreciate them. But, but subscribe. That's good enough. And follow on the socials, at Late Kick Josh. It's a very active spring on multiple fronts. As I told you on Late Kick Live Sunday, I'll tell you again now, got even more surprises coming up for you next week. And that includes us being on the road, not storm chasing per se. We're going to be on the road for college football-related reasons. I'm just not telling you where we're going yet. You'll find out when everyone finds out. Until then, for producer Jesse, for director Colin, for junior director Bradley, I'm Josh Pate. Take care. Have a great rest of your day. And God bless.